Brian and I were able to have lunch with Tim and George uh, on Wednesday and got to hear a little more and really do uh, want you to check that out and uh, we'll obviously hear more, continue to hear about the ministry of Glyphata Church since uh, we are connected with them through the Tarchics, so uh, look forward to that. Let me invite you now to open your copy of God's Word to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. Our passage today is somewhat shorter than uh, the last two Sundays. We'll just be in part of chapter 4. And just to introduce this to us, uh, but not to give away the whole thing, I, I want to read uh, verses uh, 1 through 6 as we begin. But again, we'll be looking at uh, uh, verses 1 through 12 throughout the sermon today. So in your copy of God's Word, let's read together. Uh, follow me as I read uh, Ruth 4, 1 through 6. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz uh, said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is God's inerrant and authoritative word. May he bless what we've read, and let's ask for his help as we look into uh, this section this morning. Father, we do pray you'd quicken us with your good spirit now, uh, strengthen us with your grace to see and understand uh, the truth of your redemption in these verses. God, guide our hearts and minds, strengthen me to preach clearly and, and uh, strengthen my voice as well, I pray. And we commit our time now to you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sunday morning, uh, March 26th, 1861, Charles Spurgeon began a Sunday morning sermon with these words. Now, I realize it's small for you in the back, um, but I wanted to fit the whole quote on one slide. Listen as I read this to you. Christ is a great Savior to meet the great transgressions of great rebels. The vast machinery of redemption was never undertaken for a mean or little purpose. There must be a great end in so great a plan, carried out at so great an expense, guaranteed with such great promises, and intended to bring such great glory to God. The eminently quotable 
Charles Spurgeon, and boy, I wish I could come up with something like that to start a sermon. Well, I'm using his words today. He says a, uses a phrase in here that I want to point out. It's this phrase here, the vast machinery of redemption, which I think is an interesting way to say it. As we've seen previously in the book of Ruth, the actions of Boaz, who we've read about this morning, give us a picture of a greater Boaz. And the redemption that Boaz secures for Ruth gives us a picture of the glorious redemption that Jesus Christ secured for sinners on the cross. Uh, the price that Christ paid to redeem sinners like you and me, the, the ransom that Christ paid for sinners through his death. What goes into this vast machinery of redemption? What's involved in Christ's ransom for sinners? And as we uh, look into the machinery of redemption, if we can use that phrase, kind of lift the hood and gaze down at what's going on. There are three aspects of redemption in the verses before us this morning. Uh, through the account of Boaz uh, and Ruth, we discover three aspects, three aspects of redemption in verses 1 through 12. Uh, the first aspect or component or whatever word you want to use that we encounter is the cost of redemption. Uh, the, the willing to spare no expense, Boaz pays to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And uh, I want to point out four things to you about the cost of redemption. Uh, the first thing I want you to notice is the prominence of Boaz. Boaz steps up in these verses to occupy center stage. And we see this in verse 1. I, I, I rather say I, you, we would be able to see it if we were reading the Hebrew Bible. Verse 1 begins, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. In the Hebrew Bible, the, the narrator has done something very unusual. He begins the sentence with the name of Boaz. That's the normal way that you and I would begin a sentence, but it's very unusual for a Hebrew sentence to begin like this. Uh, because in most cases, a Hebrew sentence will begin with the verb, uh, and then uh, the subject's name. But the narrator takes this unusual step to push Boaz out front, to, to make him the focus of our attention. And from this point on, it's actually Boaz uh, that occupies center stage. Naomi and Ruth really fade to the background at this point, and, and Boaz becomes the prominent figure, the, the central figure of this episode at least. He is the one taking action. He's the subject of most of the verbs. I want you to see further just how quickly he's taken action. Uh, taken action to, to uh, honor Ruth's request for redemption. It was just midnight the day before uh, that Boaz promised to act on her request uh, the next morning. Look back to chapter 3, uh, which we studied last Lord's Day, and, and then uh, glance down to verse 13. And this is what he said to her at midnight the night before. 
Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you. Good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And then Ruth returns home, reports to Naomi, and in verse 18 of chapter 3, we read this from, uh, from uh, Naomi. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Uh, verse 1 gives us the impression that on that very morning, Boaz has gone directly from the threshing floor to the city gate. He, he will take care of this today. And, and then not only quickly settle it, he will legally settle it. Note that opening phrase again. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. The city gate was, of course, the city gate, the entrance to the city, it was more than that, however. There were, there were rooms to the side of the gate. It was, it was a larger edifice. That's where the elders assembled to transact the administration of the city. It's where legal matters were settled. It's where business took place. And so we see Boaz kind of making a beeline for the city gate. And it says he sat down. There were benches in those rooms. And Sitting down at the city gate on one of the benches wasn't just that you were tired from the running to the city gate. It indicated formally that you were there to take care of a legal matter, that you had something that you needed judgment on. And this he will do as we go further in our, in our passage. Boaz comes to prominence just as we think as Christ would rise to prominence in the matter of our redemption. It's a key, the central figure, Boaz taking action here. Second, I want you to see from prominence, we go to providence. We've used this term uh, a lot in this book because time after time, we see the providence of God at work. What, what uh, again, what do we mean by providence? Providence is the purposeful sovereignty of God. It's not just that God works all things, but that he works all things for good. That he has design and purpose as he governs and directs the affairs of men. John Piper defines it like this in his excellent book, uh, providence is what it's called. Uh, the noun providence has come to mean the act of God's purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Well, of course, this is at work all the time. Uh, his purposeful sovereignty, sovereignty, not just when we notice it. His purposeful sovereignty operates all the time. But this is another place, uh, verse 1, where we see a very obvious demonstration of his providence, of his purposeful sovereignty, of his governing all things for his glory and our good. Look at verse 1 again, and we'll go further this time. Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, 
the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Uh, the, the word behold is significant. It's, it shows surprise. No sooner does Boaz sit down at the city gate, no sooner does he give notice that he's there to settle a legal matter than the very man he's described the night before just happens to come, walk, happens to come walking by. It's this man that he's described to Ruth as the closer relative. Boaz was a close relative of Elimelech, but this man is a closer relative or nearer relative. And, and as the closest relative to Elimelech, that's Naomi's late husband, the right to redeem Naomi and to redeem and marry Ruth belongs to him in his governing of events, God causes the family redeemer to arrive at the city gate just moments after Boaz arrives. And so think of the things that God would have to control for that to happen. We have things like this occur in our lives, and we don't think about what God has done to bring them about. You know, George mentioned the arrangement of his meetings this week, and surely God was at work in, in just how things came together like that through Tim's phone calls and planning. But, but back with Boaz and this man, that means God was controlling their footsteps and the length of stride that they were each taking and who they might have bumped into on the way and how long they carried on a conversation with this person. And, and, and here they are at the same time. One pastor describes it like this. Behold the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Impeccable timing. God paces Boaz steps from the threshing floor to the city gate perfectly, doesn't he? Just as Boaz sits down, you would never guess who happened to be passing. The very man Boaz needs to see. It's a clue to us that however nervous Naomi, Ruth, or Boaz might be feeling at this moment in the story, we needn't be afraid. God has perfect timing, and he will work his purposes out for the good of his people and the glory of his name. It's a wonderful part of our passage. Once again, we see the purposeful sovereignty of God at work. Just as Ruth went out to uh, gather uh, grain from a field, and it just happened to be Boaz's field she came to. All these things that God governs for his glory and for our good. Well, then we move on from providence to proceedings. And these proceedings uh, occupy the remainder of our passage. Uh, what we're about to read is, is basically a court transcript of what takes place in court, the legal matter that Boaz wants to resolve. First of all, we see the court called into session as we look down toward the middle of verse 1. It says, so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Uh, he invites the family redeemer first to sit. 
And then Boaz locates and assembles 10 elders from the city. These are the local town officials, uh, the men responsible for running the town. They had power to act as judges. Uh, and once they decided and confirmed something, it was regarded as a settled matter. Their, their rulings were regarded with the highest respect. And, and these will rule on Boaz legal matter if necessary. So court is called into session. And then Boaz begins with an opening statement in verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Owning land in Israel was a very solemn, solemn obligation. It meant far more to them than it means to you and me in the United States. Um, it was each family's obligation to see that their land remained inside the family or their tribe and to see that their land was not lost because uh, the land was considered a gift from the Lord and it was essential that they maintain uh, possession of it. It was a sacred thing. And so if an Israelite fell on hard times, he could lease his land or rent it out for someone else to use. Of course, that was temporary. Uh, if his situation improved, he could buy it back, or the family redeemer could buy it back. And if his family redeemer couldn't buy it back, it would return to him in the year of Jubilee. Once every 75 years, uh, that would be uh, returned. So this property that belongs to Naomi's late husband, seems to have fallen outside the family at this point, but it could be brought back into the family by the Redeemer, the near Redeemer. And this is what Boaz is telling this man. I, I know it's a little bit to keep track of here, but Boaz is saying, hey, you're closer to Elimelech in relation than I am, and you can get this land back into the clan this is a deal of a lifetime, and you're the nearest relative. I, I advise you, act quickly. Call now. Uh, well, perhaps not that, but he knows a good deal when he hears it, and he's uh, excited. He jumps at the opportunity to enlarge his portfolio in the end of verse 4, the very last phrase of verse 4 says, and he said, I will redeem it. Snapping up the offer that Boaz presents to him. So these are the beginning of the proceedings. Uh, but then we go on. The fourth thing I want you to notice is the price that must be paid. The full cost of redeeming Naomi's land. Boaz kind of slips it in here in verse 5. Notice what it says. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, 
the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. When you redeem this land, he says, you must also, you must also marry the widow of Elimelech's son. Marriage to Ruth is part of the, the deal, as well as raising up a son to inherit that land. This is what we call letting the other shoe drop. And hearing the full price, we see the blood drain from the Redeemer's face. And we, we feel his hands grow cold and clammy. And we feel a knot tighten in his stomach. And using very strong words, very emphatic words, look at what he says in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, kind of backpedaling as fast as he can, kind of, kind of retracing his steps, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. Very strong. You do it. I cannot redeem it. So why this sudden change of mind? Bible scholars wonder what's gone on. And they offer uh, a couple suggestions, one more likely than the other. Maybe it's because Ruth is a Moabite. Look at how Boaz spoke of her. You also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And, and remember, that's a big deal. That Israel held a grudge against the Moabites for seducing their men back in Joshua's time. And anti-Moabite feelings ran high in those days. And, and after all, it didn't work out so well for Malon. Her first husband did it. And so it, maybe it's the thought of marrying a Moabite is what makes the Redeemer go cold. Oh, she is bad luck. Again, no such thing as luck, of course. What's more likely is he, he was not a wealthy man. And to buy back the land and to provide for Ruth was probably more than he could afford. He, he could not afford to double his investment. It, it was a risk he was not willing to make. He was not willing to sink everything into the land and Ruth. And he makes it official in verse 7. Uh, he says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Strange custom. Makes us thankful for receipts, doesn't it? <laughs> but doing this sealed and validated a transaction. It was a formal act. And with this formal act, he surrenders his right of redemption to Boaz. He is he's the near relative, but he's not willing to risk bankruptcy for Ruth. Boaz is willing to risk it all. No matter what the cost. Again, listen to this pastor comment. 
Boaz is willing to commit everything to redeem Naomi and Ruth and secure the name of the family Elimelech. He acts unhesitatingly. He acts wisely. He acts faithfully keeping his promise to Ruth and Naomi. He willingly shoulders the obligation even if doing so it will be to his detriment. Mrs. Samuel Untemeyer was the wife of a well-known New York attorney back in the last century. She was traveling through Europe with companions and she happened upon a beautiful tapestry that she wanted to purchase. And she sent a telegraph to her husband with the relevant information. The price was $25,000. And she wanted to know if she could buy it. Her husband telegraphed back to her. That was instant messaging in those days. He telegraphed back to her, No! No! Price too high! Time passed, his wife returned home, and to his great surprise, she returned from Europe with the tapestry in her possession. And he looked at her squarely and asked why she had ignored his telegram, which she produced from her baggage, showing it to her husband, and his reply said, no price too high. No price too high. No price too high. Boaz here is a picture of our Redeemer who paid the high price of our costly redemption. No price too high. Listen to Paul describe the price uh, in Ephesians 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood. As Pastor Brian explained, it's not just the liquid of His blood that stands and represents His very life. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And then just moments ago we read this from 1 Peter knowing that you were, were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood uh, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You and I have a Redeemer like Boaz, no cost too high. As Christ risks it all, of course, it's not a risk to him giving his very life to pay the price for our sins on the cross. This is the tremendous cost of redemption. Well, as we continue to look at the, the machinery of redemption, there's another part we find, and that is the sacrifice of redemption. The Boaz puts the interests of Ruth and her family ahead of his own. And, and we see this in verse 9. Look at your Bible. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, 
you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. This is kind of a closing statement from Boaz, and he's calling the elders and the crowd. Apparently, they've been gathering to, to watch what's transpiring in the city gate. He calls them to bear witness to what has just happened. Uh, the elders and the people are not merely bystanders. They're, uh, they're, they're legal witnesses. They've witnessed the family redeemer just surrender his right of redemption. And if this is ever called into question, of course, Boaz can, can produce the sandal. But not only that, he can produce witnesses who saw the whole thing transpire. But look at his motivation as he goes on in verse 10. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Better to say, I have acquired to be my wife. He's not purchasing her as we would think of that. Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have, I have acquired to be my wife. Of course, he wants to marry Ruth. He had heard about her sacrifice for Naomi leaving her family and her homeland to follow Naomi and, and to follow Naomi's God. And then he saw her faithfulness with his own eyes as, as she worked in his field. And then there on the threshing floor heard her humble plea for redemption. And, and no doubt a kindred spirit has formed between them. Uh, Ruth, a genuine follower of Yahweh, and he wanted to make her his wife. And we would think that would be all. But that's not all that motivated him. Look at how verse 10 goes on to say, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, to carry on her husband's name, that's Malon. And what is that about? That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Well, for an Israelite, there's nothing worse than having your name blotted out from memory. To have your name cut off was a curse and a sign of God's condemnation. Deuteronomy describes it like this. This is God speaking to Moses about the Israelites. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. Psalm 109 describes this, this as well. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. This is, this is an extraordinary display of self-sacrifice from Boaz who wants the names of Elimelech and Elimelech's son, Malon, that's Ruth's late husband, to continue. Well, how would he do that? He would do that by having children with Ruth. And technically, these would not be his children, but Malon's children. And Boaz and Elimelech's land would be passed on to them. And in this way, their names would be remembered in, in Bethlehem, in, in that region. And in laying down his own interests like this, 
He pictures and portrays what Jesus said in John chapter 12, uh, which I unfortunately don't have for you, but it says this, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever loves his life clings to it, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Think about how that first Redeemer acted in, in, in this scene. He acted to protect his interests and preserve his inheritance and to guard his financial security. He, he loved his own life. And, and how does the narrator regard him because of that self-interest? Glance up to verse 1 again and look at how he, he is spoken of. Uh, it says, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And Boaz, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Friend is, is really putting it mildly. Boaz says more literally, turn aside, Poloni Almoni. Turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. Hey, you, have a seat. Hey, what's your name? This is a deliberate attempt by the narrator to show disrespect for the Redeemer and to keep his identity anonymous. By guarding his financial security, promoting his own interests, is given no place in history. And by guarding his own interests, he, he consigns his name to oblivion. Boaz, on the other hand, does not love his own life, but lays down his life, putting forward the interest of Ruth and her family, risking his financial security Risking his solvency. Risking, again, everything to redeem her. And what is the outcome? As a result, here we are still talking about Boaz 3,000 years later. Pastor David Strain comments, whoever seeks to make a name for themselves at the expense of others loses their name in the end. In the city of London, there's a, there's a small but beautiful park. It's called Postman's Park. Um, it's located near St. Paul's Cathedral. And you see uh, this awning on the back wall, and you see these white uh, things here. Uh, those are actually... Um, uh, 54 Royal Dalton ceramic tiles. And each of these tiles bears a short testimony to someone from London who gave their life to save someone else. For example, I know you can't read that. It says Thomas Griffin, fitter's laborer, April 12, 1899, in a boiler explosion at a Battersea sugar refinery was fatally scalded in returning to search for his mate. 
Walter Pert, driver, and Harry Dean, fireman of the Windsor Express on July 18, 1899, whilst being scalded and burnt, sacrificed their lives in saving the train. John Cranmer, age 23, a clerk in the London County Council who was drowned near Ostend while saving the life of a stranger and foreigner, August 8, 1901. Finally, Alice Ayers, daughter of a bricklayer's laborer who by intrepid conduct saves three children from a burning house in Union Street Borough at the cost of her own young life, April 24, 1885. And on it goes across the back wall. Boaz, in his profound sacrifice, is a picture of the sacrifice Christ made and also the kind of sacrifice that Christ calls you and I to make. I want you to hear Paul describe this sacrifice from Philippians 2. The men have been studying this on Wednesday nights. And Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Boaz portrays not only what Christ did, but what Christ calls you and I to do as well, this sacrifice of redemption. As Boaz, the Redeemer, uh, forwards the interests of Ruth and, and her family and her late husband ahead of his own name. This is the sacrifice of redemption. Finally, there's one more aspect of redemption, one more component from our passage uh, in Ruth 4. And the third component is the blessing of redemption. Ruth, the outsider, is included among the greats of Israel. Look at verse 11 in your Bible. Then all the people who are at the gate... And the elders says, we are witnesses. That's their affirmation, yes. But that's not enough. They can't stop there. They go on to make a blessing. And they continue, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Well, as famous mothers go, you could hardly mention two more famous women in history of Israel. Rachel and Leah, they gave birth to the 12 tribes for Pete's sake. And now Ruth lumped in with them. Ruth the outsider. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the nobody. Is mentioned in the same breath with Rachel and Leah. May the Lord raise up her children in Israel just as he did with Rachel and Leah. And it goes on 
In the, uh, toward the end of the verse, this one's directed at Boaz. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And we've seen that God's answered this. Here we are talking about Boaz 3,000 years later. That's, if that's not renown, I don't know what is. And then back to Ruth in verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord would give you by this young woman. Now, if your Old Testament history is a little rusty, these names mean nothing. But Tamar, who he mentions in verse 12, like Ruth, was also an outsider, a Canaanite. And, and Tamar's situation was similar to Ruth's. She was, a, she was a widow. And we stopped comparing at that point. Tamar's method of redemption, oh boy, completely different from Ruth. The words seedy and manipulative come to mind. And you can read about Tamar later today in Genesis 38. And yet... One of Tamar's sons in particular played an important role in Israel's history. His name's Perez. Perez and Zerah. She had twins, but Perez uh, played a significant role, produced many families in Israel, including the family line of Boaz, his descendant. May the Lord produce great children in Israel through Ruth, in the same way he produced your husband through Tamar. And the incredible blessing of redemption is that Ruth, the outsider, is now included among other famous women in Israel's history. And the great blessing of our redemption is that outsiders like you and I I think we're all Gentiles here. I'm not sure. Nobody's in the family of God are, are now included in the in people of God. Outsiders are now in. Listen to Paul say it. Ephesians chapter uh, 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus you who were once far off, like Ruth, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached, pre preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Outsiders made insiders. During World War I, a Protestant chaplain with the American troops in Italy became a friend of a local Roman Catholic priest. And after a while, the chaplain moved on with his unit and unfortunately was killed in battle. And the priest heard of his death and asked military authorities if the chaplain could be buried in the cemetery behind his church. Their friendship had grown so warm. Uh, permission was granted, but the priest ran into a problem with his own Catholic church authorities. They were, they were sympathetic, of course, but they said they could not approve the burial of a non-Catholic in a Catholic cemetery. And so the priest buried his friend just outside the cemetery fence. Years passed, and much later a war veteran who had known of this event returned to Italy and, and visited the old priest, still there. And the first thing he did was to ask to see the chaplain's grave. And to his surprise, he found the grave inside the fence. I, I see you've got permission to move the body. No, said the priest. They told me where I, I couldn't bury the body, but nobody ever told me I couldn't move the fence. <laughs> so he moved the fence. This is what was done for Ruth. And this is what was done for you through faith in Christ. Outsiders, strangers to the covenants of promise, now made insiders through the redemption that Christ offered and provides. Ruth, now inside the fence, included with the greats in Israel, and you and I, who know Christ, once outsiders, because of our great Redeemer, are now insiders in the family of God. So, what goes into this machinery of redemption, as, as Spurgeon called it? This incredibly complex and incredibly glorious redemption. Uh, what's involved in this ransom for sinners that Christ has made? Well, this morning in our passage, we've seen three aspects of this glorious redemption. The, the cost of redemption that Jesus Christ gave everything to redeem us from sin. His very life He laid down. And then we've seen the sacrifice of, of redemption, that, that He promoted our interests, our salvation above His own life, just as Boaz uh, portrayed for us in chapter 4. And then the blessing of redemption. Finally, uh, outsiders like you and I are now inside and belong to the people of God. My good friend, 
this redemption is for you. And all that's necessary for you is to turn from sin, to rely on the payment Christ made on the cross. The glorious redemption He offers to you this morning through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And have you trusted Christ for His redemption and for His payment for sin? And if you're not sure about that, I'd love to speak to you down here after the service. But to the many of you here who have, do not the people around us need to hear about the glorious redemption that Christ provides, the, the ransom that He paid, the forgiveness of sins that comes as a result? Indeed, they do. May we be faithful to those around us who still need to hear this good message. And now, Father, we thank you for the payment your son made. And we thank you for the machinery of redemption that we've observed this morning. And I pray, Father, that we would come to revel in what your son did for us on the cross significantly that now we belong to your family. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not yet know Christ, that he would come to saving faith in Christ as his Redeemer. And Father, that you would quicken us by your indwelling Spirit to share the message of redemption to those around us who have yet to hear. We ask this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.